Buddham Dhammang Sanghang Namatsang. For some reason or other, I was recently recalling a conversation that I had with Ajahn Abhinanda. Many of you will know Ajahn Abhinanda lived here for about 15 years, and these days is the leader of the community in our monastery in Switzerland. Anyway, this conversation was around his questioning my use of the word identity and or identify and he was here for many years and heard me give many talks and what he asked was what do you mean when you refer to being identified with awareness itself and I replied that I don't think I ever used that expression because I was very careful to always talk about being identified as rather than with because in keeping with the Buddha's teaching the idea that there's a, a solid substantial separate self that's identified with something else is not helpful and if I ever did use the expression identified with it was because I was speaking too fast or I was too tired or it was a, a mistake and my intention was always to use the expression of being identified as. There's a big difference, at least in the way my mind works, uh, in these terms, being identified with and identified as. And, and it's obviously an important subject. Um, so much concern today around identity. What does it mean? the very word identity, what does that mean these days? Uh, at least when I think of it, I have the impression that it means what am I in my essence? What am I truly? What is my true nature? I don't know for sure what etymologists would have to say about that usage of the word identity. At least in the English language, words change the meaning and I suspect it's true in other languages and you don't find a word has the same meaning throughout all time they evolve and I think it's fair enough to to use the word identity as referring to who or what I truly am at the core of my being and this of course is a it's a big subject in Buddhism this is a, on the subject of words changing their meaning, I, another conversation I, I had with a, a monk who was living here some years ago, um, a young German monk who, before he joined the monastery, had a job as a waiter. He was explaining to me how one day he was working for this fairly classy restaurant in London and he told his boss that he thought he was pathetic. And, and the boss exploded, as you would expect. You know, if you value your job, you don't tell your boss that you think he's pathetic. And, and it turns out that in German, uh, at least used to be the, the word pathetic, and presumably has the same source as the word pathetic. However, in German, the word pathetic has got a very different meaning. To call somebody pathetic is usually insulting. Pathetic is 
from what I understand, is something to do with over-the-top, too much, extreme, dramatic. And I'm sure you can think of many other examples of how words change their meaning over time. Or words can be misunderstood in language in general. Living in this community here where we have a New Zealand abbot and an English vice abbot and and then we're flooded with a German and then a Chinese, Malaysian and then and then a what have we got, Colombian, Spanish and then a Southern English and then an English, then a French and French Caribbean. And although we all think we speak English, we sometimes misunderstand each other. And so it is with language. And words are approximations and we often misunderstand what's being referred to. I've mentioned before, I think, that example of Ajahn Vipassi, who used to live with us here, and how when he was living at Amarawati, uh, as a German-speaking nun, and he were having a conversation in the morning, and, and she asked him, and by the way, I'm not being disrespectful of the German language here, it just happened to be another German speaker, she she asked Ajahn Vipassi how he was doing, and he, he said, oh, I'm great, high as a kite, a great time. And, and then it was several hours later that, that this German-speaking nun came back, and she said, oh, I'm so sorry, I, I can't find any medicine for Heisekite, because apparently Heisekite is a sore throat in German. So be it. And, um, language is not straightforward, not linear. Anyway, getting back to this subject of, of identity, how do we approach it in our daily life? What do we identify as? And what are we doing when we're talking about our identity? Surely we're looking for security. We're looking for stability. And is what we identify as or with secure and safe? This is important. Partly because of a conversation I had with a, a Christian monk in New Zealand some years ago, and also out of reading an article in a magazine that I think somebody might have sent me or somehow I came across on the subject of identity. I have personally come up with a theory about, and I'm obviously not a psychologist here, this is an amateur theory, but I find it helpful in, in coming to terms with the struggle that exists in our society these days. And this theory suggests that that our sense of identity has got three dimensions to it. There's a surface dimension which changes through our life, and then there's a, a middle dimension which is less changing, and then there's a core dimension. And if we hold to this model, then not only does it help us understand the struggle that's going on in society, it can also highlight those dimensions that really warrant investment. So what I'm talking about here, of course, is, is the core level of our identity. And, and this is where I was saying that conversation I had with a, 
a Christian monk in New Zealand some years ago, and I know some of you heard me talk about this before, where he had been working for the Mother Teresa community in Vietnam during the time of the Vietnam War. And he mentioned how he'd seen a number of seriously wounded soldiers coming into the hospital and purporting to be Christians. And yet he said when it happened that they were approaching death, they often reverted to being Buddhists. And what's going on there? What is it? Well, I would suggest that the core beliefs that get instilled generally in the early stages of our life, they form a dimension of our sense of identity that have a far-reaching effect on our character. More far-reaching than some of the other more surface aspects, like, for instance, on the middling level, I would say that it's an aspect of my character to be a New Zealander. And I have a, well, no, I don't have a New Zealand passport, but I'm still a New Zealand citizen. And when I hear the, the haka being recited before the rugby match, it regularly moves me to tears, and I'm not quite sure why, but obviously there's something going on there. Now, I'm a New Zealander. Is that as important as the core aspects of my identity? I would say not. And then there's a surface level of my identity, which is basically... I'm an older man, I'm 71 years old. And I haven't always been older. I can remember when I was 21. 41. That changes. However, it is part of my identity. Where do we find security? What do we invest in? And what has our Buddhist practice got to say about this? If the core level of our identity, I would suggest, is not informed with true principles, with right beliefs, then there's a very real risk that we will try and find security in the more surface levels of our identity. Like being a New Zealander is a big deal. Is it really? Is it such a big deal? 70, 80 years, and then you're dead. I mean, is it really that important? So, it occurs to me that having this model, or having such a model, of what constitutes our identity can be very helpful because we invest then in the core elements of our identity, the core beliefs, what in Buddhism we refer to as samaditi, or right view. And particularly in bringing up children, this is tremendously important. How often is it the case now that that children have a a predictable, consistent program for instilling right beliefs? It does happen, of course, in some families. But a lot of families, I suspect that that aspect of the child's development is ignored. and, And so they pick up things from the social media, from the television from their peer group, and does that really address the need for a stable relationship at the core of their sense of identity? I suspect that it doesn't. And so when they're looking for security, a lot of people will cling to 
hold to, identify with, identify as insecure aspects of their being. So where do we find security and how do we hold to these different aspects of our character? As Buddhists, what does it mean to have faith in the Buddha? For a lot of people, up until very recently in human history, you say, what are you or who are you? They say, well, I'm a follower of Jesus or I'm a follower of Muhammad or I'm a follower of Krishna finding their sense of identity, their core identity, in relationship to imagined external authority. As Buddhists say, well, I'm a Buddhist. What does that actually mean? I go for refuge to the Buddha. Well, I think it's to do with this core dimension of our identity, and that's very important. But what do we actually mean by that? Do we understand that we believe in this human being who walked around in India 2,600 and something years ago, Is that what we believe in? And when we meditate, for a lot of people, in their meditation on breathing, they use the the word buddho, breathing in, breathing out, buddho, buddho, or breathing in, bud, breathing out, ho. What do they mean by that? What is that? Is it? Is that some sort of, for when Westerners pick up this practice, is that some sort of substituting a belief in God for now believing in Buddha, some sort of external authority? When George Sharp, a longtime friend and supporter of our monasteries, went to visit Ajahn Chah when he was still alive in, in Wapapong, and he asked Ajahn Chah directly, what is Buddha in Pali? You know, Buddha is a big thing in your meditation technique. So, what is buddha? What is the Pali word for buddha? And if George reported it accurately, and if I remember it correctly, what Ajahn Chah said was buddha means mano vinyana datu. Now, I'm definitely not a Pali scholar or any sort of a scholar, and I wouldn't want to upset the scholars with that, so please hold that lightly. But the English translation of buddha as many of you will know, is the one who knows. Is that really a helpful, is that really a helpful way of understanding what we're going for refuge to, the one who knows? To me that still sounds very close to the idea of being identified with something, like a separate sense of self, a separate somebody who knows, the one who knows. It's a technically accurate translation of the Thai which is do a puru, do a However, I'm not convinced that do a puru has the same connotations as the one who knows. So I found that a very strange translation of buddha is the one who knows. What I find more useful is translating it as knowingness. Knowingness. That's worth investing in. Especially if we qualify with selfless knowingness or selfless just knowing awareness. I know that's a lot longer than than the one who knows. However, this is important. What do we really believe in? What do we really identify as? 
perhaps you've come across that talk that's been translated and printed in various locations. It's called What is Contemplation? And this was an occasion at a monastery called Wat Gornok, which is quite near Ajahn Chah's main monastery, Wat Bapong. And, and Ajahn Chah was towards the end of his life when he was still teaching and still talking. He spent a, a Pansa range retreat there. And there's a, a record of a question and answer session where there was uh, these three monks, uh, an Australian monk, a Japanese monk, and a French monk, uh, and they were asking Ajahn Chah all these questions about practice. And the conversation started off as, as the title of the talk, as has been translated, indicates. And so, what really is contemplation, Lumpur? What is contemplation? Is contemplation the same thing as thinking? And Ajahn Chah goes into detail of pointing out how, yes, in the beginning, we use coarse level of thinking, kwankit yap yap, coarse level of thinking. That's the beginning of contemplation. And then it progresses to kit na kwamsangwap, which is thinking in stillness or thinking in silence. Or I like to understand that as as a, a feeling inquiry. Not not inquiring into feelings, or it might be inquiring into feelings, mainly inquiring by way of feeling, not by way of thinking. So our contemplation moves from up in our heads where we're using coarse concepts. What we're doing is we're informing our hearts and educating ourselves so as to be able to feel our way through the inner workings of our being and investigate quietly. Anyway, this conversation goes on to uh, talking Ajahn Chah being asked this question about the original heart-mind or, or what is jit-derm in Thai? What is jit-derm? What is the original heart-mind? Like when everything else is gone, what is left at the core? In other words, what is the core of our being? What is our true nature? And Ajahn Chah gets a little bit kind of impatient, it seems, with these young monks asking all these questions and saying, what do you mean? What are you talking about? Jit-derm, original heart mind. And, and it's as if they say, well, you know, when everything else has been let go of, what is it? Are you saying that there's something there outside of the, the five aggregates? And, and Ajahn Chah is saying, well, if there's anything there, just throw it all out. It's just a load of trouble. Throw it all out. And they persist and say, well, you know, what's left after you've thrown everything out? Can we call that the original heart mind? And, and then Ajahn Chah kind of relaxes a little bit and says, well, you can call it whatever you like, uh, if you want to call it something. However, don't go ascribing too much value to these approximations. The concept of the original mind is that. It's an approximation. It's a convention. And so when we're talking about our true identity, that which we identify as most deeply, as a form of finding true inner security, the Buddha's teaching does not encourage us to, to cling to anything. That doesn't mean to say that we've got nothing to do, there's nothing to cultivate. As I was saying a minute ago, that personally my preferred translation of Buddha is, well, knowing this, that's a bit clumsy in English, it's just knowing. And as a meditation technique, I think it can be very helpful. And 
your mind can be all over the place and you're concentrating on the breath and, and the mind is scattered and so with just a, a subtle sensation so you want to have something a little bit more stable, a little bit more predictable so you can use these words just knowing, these two words just knowing, breathing in breathing out just knowing breathing in breathing out just knowing and then maybe there's a sense of oh, now there's this I just knowing well we can inquire further purifying that perception, purifying the awareness by asking who? Who is just knowing? Being careful with the concepts that we have about who or what we truly are in the core of our being is important. Being really careful about that. And so, personally, as I was saying a minute ago, using the concept of selfless, just-knowing awareness, remembering that that's just an approximation. We don't go around telling people and say, oh, I believe in selfless, just-knowing awareness. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Dhamma